Welcome. You're listening to The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. Today I'm joined by Dr. John Peckham. He's a professor of theology and Christian philosophy at the Seminary of Andrews University. And in 2018, he published his book, The Odyssey of Love. Now, this book is extremely unique because it couples some of the best philosophical work that's been done on the problem of evil, along with a very robust biblical understanding of that problem. I'm excited to jump into the interview, so let's begin. I'm going to start out by laying out um, uh, just a very simple uh, version of the logical problem of evil. And I stole this quote straight from, I think, one of the footnotes in your book. So it says, Is God willing to prevent evil and yet not able? Then God is um, uh, impotent. If God is able and not willing, then he is malevolent. If God is both able and willing, whence then is evil? So that's the uh, the logical problem. Now, um, this took hold, this logical problem of evil, from my understanding, took hold for um, quite a while, at least in like philosophical circles. Mm-hmm. But um, my understanding is now it's not really a big deal. So what happened? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was a very dominant argument used uh, by atheists and agnostic philosophers as an argument against against the existence of God, right? The God of theism, at least, who is omnipotent, meaning all powerful, uh, omniscient, all knowing, omnibenevolent, entirely good. And the argument just is, if God is all three of those things, there shouldn't be any evil in the world because God would have enough power to prevent any evil. He would, of course, know about any evil that would occur. And he would want to prevent any evil. So if he's all-powerful, he could he could prevent those things. Uh, any kind of evil, he could prevent it being all-powerful. And so the argument was, therefore, God doesn't exist, or at least it's, uh, it's extremely unlikely that God exists. And uh, what really shifted the conversation recently is a number of decade, decades ago, Alvin Plantinga articulated uh, what he calls the free will defense. Uh, which even many uh, atheist philosophers have uh, recognized actually resolves the logical problem of evil. Now, that's not to say that they think the problem of evil itself is entirely resolved, uh, but that it resolves the logical problem of evil. Plantinga wasn't the first one uh, to articulate a free will argument with regard to evil, but he articulated it so robustly in such a very strong philosophical form that it has really carried the day so that most of uh, philosophical discussion has moved on from the logical problem of evil to something called the evidential or the probabilistic problem of evil, which instead of saying, uh, if there's evil in the world, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God doesn't exist, they say instead, well, it's logically possible that God could exist given that there's evil in the world, but it's improbable or highly unlikely that God exists given the kind and amount of evil in the world. So the discussion has shifted largely with regard because of uh, planning as free will defense. Perfect. And uh, would you say that uh, that his little book, God, Freedom and Evil, is a mm-hmm. good for somebody that wants to look at, at that uh, in more depth, just pick up God, Freedom and Evil? 
I would say that, yeah. He articulates it first, I think, in The Nature of Necessity, but then God, Freedom of e- and Evil, uh, published by Erdman's, uh, is a shorter book. Uh, it's it's quite readable. I mean, it's, it's philosophical, of course, but it's quite readable for somebody who wants to engage the arguments. Uh, and he and he not only lays out the free will defense, but he responds to many objections to it uh, in a way that I think is brilliant. So I, I really appreciate his work. Perfect. Yeah, and that, um, it's... It, it seemed to me that uh, the the free will defense is extremely valuable for this reason. It, it handles the logical problem of evil so well. Uh, and I like that in your book, you build upon that foundation. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I, I that was another thing that very was very intriguing to me about your book was you're expanding upon and going in like a new direction, but your foundation was this free will defense. So... Mm-hmm. Um, what briefly, and you, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but if you had to uh, summarize Plantinga's uh, argument to deal with the logical problem of evil, what, what would you say? Yeah, so, so the simplest way to think of it is Plantinga just says you could add another premise to the argument. The argument typically goes, if God is omnipotent and omniscient, omnibenevolent, and there's evil in the world, those four premises don't fit together. Uh, one of them should be false, right? Uh, but Plantinga says, no, it might be the case that there's another premise, and that premise is that God has granted creatures uh, a kind of freedom that he calls significant freedom, which is uh, freedom with regard to moral choices. And if it's the case that a world that includes creatures with significant freedom is all other things being equal, more valuable than a world that doesn't have that kind of freedom— uh, and that would be a good reason for, for granting that kind of freedom. And if God grants that kind of freedom, then it's not strictly up to God whether creatures exercise that freedom to actually bring evil into the world. So in a nutshell, uh, the free will defense suggests that it might be that creatures are granted this kind of free will by God. God has good reasons for granting that kind of free will such that creatures can do otherwise than God actually wants them to do, meaning God that, that the creatures can do evil. And sadly, tragically, creatures have exercised that freedom to do evil, uh, but it doesn't count against God's goodness, doesn't count against God's omnipotence, doesn't count against God's omniscience, as long as he has good reasons for granting that free freedom. Perfect. I think that's very well articulated. Uh, so I want to explore some of these good reasons. Uh, I want to try and ask tonight, what are some of these good reasons God might have uh, for doing this? But um, before I do that, planning a, uh, if I remember correctly, in some of the footnotes in God, Freedom, and Evil, um, he, he gives some hints of um, evil having some root in demonic activity or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he makes this curious... Uh, intriguing suggestion uh, somewhere that says uh, all evil uh, arises from creaturely free will. Mm-hmm. So uh, when he says all evil arises from creaturely free will, are you? Th- uh, is he talking about not just moral evil, like the uh, on behalf of humans, like our uh, actions, the choices we make having repercussions? Mm-hmm. And evil coming from our choices, um, but even natural e- evil, things like hurricanes and um, you know fire, forest fires, and things like that, um, 
is 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 he suggesting that uh, at least free will may account for those things natural evil too? Yeah, he suggests that as a possibility. He doesn't he doesn't commit himself to the truth of that view, and of course he doesn't need to because he's trying to put forth a defense. And all that's required for that is a logically possible avenue that would defeat the argument against God's existence, the logical problem of evil. But he does suggest that, particularly with regard to the problem of natural evil that is uh, typically defined as evil that is not the result of the free choices of creatures, as you mentioned. Um, But he suggests that maybe there isn't such a thing as natural evil so defined. Maybe all evil in the universe actually originates with, uh, with the fall of Satan and his minions, and therefore what we call natural evil is also rooted in a moral evil, a moral decision of uh, a creature who fell, uh, who the Bible describes as Satan and his angels. And he, he doesn't mean by that that uh, the, the, the natural disasters in the world are necessarily caused by Satan and his minions directly, mm. but that that fall event uh, perhaps through through the through the world into a kind of disequilibrium or otherwise affected nature, so that the kinds of things we experience now in this world, natural disasters and, and the like, are actually rooted in that original fall, and the world wouldn't be the way it is if it wasn't for that. And so that would explain both what we typically think of as moral evils that are more obviously connected to the choices that creatures make, uh, but also so-called natural evils or evil in nature uh, would be rooted in that fall, uh, at least potentially, I'm planning his account. Okay. So we've talked a lot about planning it, just because he gives a good kind of foundation. But I want to start shifting into how you've built upon him. So um, describe for me, what did you take away from planning a, uh, or, or build upon, and then... Um, specifically, I want to start asking if the theodicy that you're going to lay out addresses the probabilistic version. So we say the free will defense took care of the logical problem of evil, but Mm -hmm. now we've got this probabilistic version. And I don't know what you would say, does the free will defense take care of that too, or do we need to build upon the free will defense to take care of the probabilistic version? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So um, I do. I am I am aiming at at addressing this probabilistic or evidential problem of evil uh, that gives a coherent account of how God could be the loving God that's described in the Bible. uh, And yet there could be the kind and amount of evil that we see in this world. I want to distinguish that very clearly at the outset from the religious problem of evil or sometimes called the pastoral problem of evil which is kind of how we cope with evil. Uh, what I do in the book is dealing primarily with the philosophical uh, elements of the problem, um, and we need to distinguish between that kind of an account and an account uh, and the way you would help somebody who's wrestling with evil uh, or wrestling with suffering in their life. Here I'm focusing on really trying to reconcile the coherence of a good God in light of all of these, all of these things. And I do think that uh, as brilliant as the free will defense is, at least the basic free will defense that just deals with uh, human freedom, I think that it, it leaves some some gaps when it comes to the evidential problem of evil. Now, that's not to say there aren't moves that could be made. Somebody could just stay with the basic free will defense and then say when it comes to the evidential problem of evil that we don't have good reason to believe that that actually renders God's existence improbable. And there's a number of arguments that could be made in that direction. So I don't mean to suggest that you have to uh, adopt something like the view that I would put forth to have any kind of a response I don't mean that at all. 
Uh, but I do think that the free will defense, as it's typically laid out, at least the basic account of it, uh, it leaves some questions about a number of evils in the world that it seems God could prevent without impinging upon anyone's free will. So one example that I think I use in the book is we could imagine a number of people dying tragically in a plane crash, and it could be the case that the the cause of that plane crash was some mechanical error. And if God is all-knowing, uh, of course, he would, he would know about the mechanical error, and one way that this could be prevented is by some special revelation before the crash uh, to a mechanic or whoever would be in a position to actually repair the airplane so that never happens. And it doesn't seem to be the case, uh, at least from anything we can see, that for God to do that would actually remove anyone's free will or go against anyone's free decisions. And there's a number of kinds of evil in the world like those that it seems something more than a basic free will defense uh, might be needed to account for. Perfect. Good example. Okay, so um, let's let's start getting into your theodicy then. Some of the the planks of your or the the, the core elements of your theodicy. Um, I know in the book you uh, start out by critiquing um, kind of uh, I don't want to say Calvinistic. It doesn't have to be Calvinistic inherently, but I guess deterministic. Um, mm-hmm. d- some kind of deterministic solution for the problem of evil. You kind of dismiss those. I don't know if you want to say something about that to illustrate why the kind of theodicy you're constructing uh, is has more uh, tools at it at, to at its uh, I don't know to work with. Yeah, yeah. So 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 the free will defense does depend upon a particular view of freedom, the kind of freedom that if God grants it, uh, he can't both, he can't determine that everyone freely does what he wants. If it's a kind of freedom that is an indeterministic freedom, which is what the free will defense requires. Um, I think uh, that there is a strong biblical case that can be made that God does grant that kind of free will. And I devote most of a chapter to trying to articulate that. Uh, I make that argument based on a lot of evidence in scripture of what I call God's unfulfilled desires where God explicitly states he wants this or that to happen, or he doesn't want this thing to happen. Uh, And then uh, the opposite of what God stated was his desire actually occurs. And if if, if God is actually stating what he actually wants to happen, meaning what would occur if everyone does what he ideally desires, uh, then it's very hard to account uh, for that, those kinds of unfulfilled desires given determinism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think deterministic theodicies uh, deterministic approaches to the problem of evil, they're, they're going to have to be committed to some kind of account of evil that ends up uh, with the view that this is what God actually wanted to occur. Mm-hmm. And a free will defense and other lines of arguments in the other direction is going to say, no, evil is actually against what God actually desires, what God actually wants, uh, and there's another explanation for evil in the universe. Okay, this is this is a good segue. So we're talking about um, what God wants, His will, mm-hmm. um, and I will uh, uh, maybe you can help me remember. I, I would like to mention something at the end. I, I don't think it's necessary to stop right now and and expand on it. But I thought that that argument you gave from God's unfulfilled desires, um, a biblical, uh, biblically based argument, 
was fantastic. I had never seen one like that, and I thought this is very good uh, way to argue for libertarian freedom mm. uh, on biblical grounds, mm-hmm. um, not just philosophical grounds. And mm-hmm. uh, in addition to that, you gave this very, very sharp, powerful critique of the kind of uh, uh, appeal that that frequently Calvinists or uh, mm-hmm. deterministic uh, breed of Calvinists affirm yes. that that hell is necessary for right. God's love and uh, perfect justice to be on uh, completely manifested. Yes, and uh, your critique of that, I'd like to to just return to that at the end because I think those watching would really benefit from hearing that. But I don't. You can. Tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I don't think it's necessary to stop right here and 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 expand on that. It's up to you. Either way, I can expand on it quickly if you if you want me to. Yeah, now, real Keep quickly. Going. So just to, yeah. just to say it, restate it. Uh, explain what Calvinists typically say about hell, how they um, yeah justify yeah. it. And so very quickly, a determinist. The the main resource for determinists, they could appeal to something called skeptical theism, which is just the view that. God has reasons for determining all the evil in the world, but we just don't know what they are, and we shouldn't expect to know what they are. So that avenue is always available. But many determinists are, uh, appeal to something that's called the divine glory defense. And the divine glory defense argues that evil is somehow necessary for the manifestation of God's glory, uh, which includes the manifestation of God's wrath and his uh, his uh, ban- sending a damning uh, creatures to hell. Um, and so they're not, they're not saying that evil actually increases God's glory. Very, th- very few Christian theists would want to say that anything could increase God's glory. So when they're talking about this, they, they're talking about the manifestation of God's glory or that creatures would recognize his glory and that it's necessary for evil to occur so that God can uh, manifest his wrath against evil and therefore everyone can recognize his glory maximally. Uh, what I uh, argue in the book, though, is that if God actually is a, is a deterministic God, that means that God causally determines everything that occurs. And if God causally determines everything that occurs, or at least could do so uh, without any, without losing anything, then he also could causally determine exactly what we think and exactly what we know, every single creature, which means there would be no need for an external manifestation of God's wrath or God's glory because he could make every creature immediately maximally recognize his wrath and his glory without any evil in the first place. So aside from just struggling with how evil would bring God glory at all, I I wrestle with that too, I just don't see how it makes sense on determinism given that God could determine creatures to maximally recognize God's glory immediately. Yeah. Well said. I won't say anything more. Uh, I, I just thought that was great. I had never thought of that, and I thought, man, that's brilliant. Okay, well, we were talking about what God's desire, what what God does desire. So, um, can you uh, elaborate on the difference between what you call God's ideal will and His remedial will? Yeah, I think there's evidence. Yeah, there's evidence in Scripture that God doesn't always get what He wants. Right? There's these unfulfilled desires that I mentioned before. So you have them, like in Psalm 81, where God is crying out to His people, uh, "Oh, how I wish that you would turn to me, and if you would, then 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 I would turn to you." And many other passages where you have uh, the Pharisees rejecting uh, God's purpose uh, for them, uh, which is which is actually using a word for for uh, will in that particular verse. So you have a number of places where God has these unfulfilled desires. And I think to account for these, we need to distinguish between God's ideal will and God's remedial will. And God's ideal will I define as uh, 
what would occur if everyone always did what God ideally desires or God actually wants to occur. So if everyone always freely did what God wants, that would be God's ideal will. God's remedial will is God's will that takes into account the free decisions of creatures, including the many bad ones that are not part of his ideal will. He doesn't want anyone to do evil, but given that he knows that they will, he takes that into account and then he wills the best or the most preferable outcome that includes all of those free decisions of creatures that God is not himself determining. So it's reme- I call it remedial because God is remedying the, the situation of all the evil brought in by creaturely decisions. Very good. And uh, I, I think you, I've heard you give a, a good analogy about a baking show. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give yeah, that I use analogy. This, I think it illustrates it well. I, I use this often with my students. Um, so probably, some, at least some people watching be familiar with some of these uh, cooking shows where you have these chefs in a competition and they're, they're given a task where they have to use uh, an ingredient or a set of ingredients. They can make anything they want but it has to include those ingredients. And uh, this is a little bit like that, apart from the fact that God, of course, no one could compel God to use anything. But if God commits himself to granting free creature, free will to creatures of the kind that they can actually do otherwise than he wants, if he commits himself to that consistently, then effectively uh, the, the consequences of creatures' decisions are going to be part of history. And so analogous to those mystery ingredients or ingredients that chefs have to use Uh, God is using those decisions of free creatures, even the bad ones. They're part of history, but then he adds to that all of the good things that he does to bring about uh, the most preferable uh, history, all things considered, uh, given those those bad decisions. And if you have this uh, kind of understanding of of ideal and remedial will, it helps a lot to make, make sense of Scripture in a way that still upholds a very robust concept of providence, a very robust concept of divine sovereignty, where uh, in the end, everything happens uh, according, he, he works all things according to his will, as Ephesians 1 says. Uh, but I think in that passage, to be consistent with all the other passages that say some things happen that are not according to his will, I just, I think those passages are referring to God's remedial will, his will that's already taken into account all of these decisions that are less than optimal. Right. Yeah, I find that um, distinction between the ideal and remedial will really useful in interpreting scripture. So again, good job on that. Okay. Now, um, I want to introduce this idea now that we have uh, this, this kind of framework for, uh, the distinction between God's will. Um, I want to elaborate on what you call the cosmic conflict. Mm -hmm. So where do you get this idea from cause for cosmic conflict? Is it biblical? Um, if so, uh, what scriptures would you use to explain it? Yeah, so the idea of a cosmic conflict is is really all over the Bible. It's clearer in the New Testament than the Old Testament, but it's also qu- quite clear in the Old Testament uh, once you understand a few components about what's happening uh, in the Old Testament. But starting with the New Testament, I, I, if you just started right at the beginning of the New Testament, you started reading Matthew, you're going to run into the cosmic conflict quite quickly. Uh, minimally define the cosmic conflict to just the view that there is a clash, there is a conflict between God, God's kingdom, and this uh, demonic realm, Satan and his minions, which are creatures, fallen creatures, that have rebelled against God. And you see this just already as the setting of Jesus' ministry all throughout the Gospels, right? 
if you if you're reading in Matthew, already in Matthew four, you have this temptation narrative where you have Satan, you have Jesus being driven into the wilderness, and then uh, after fasting for forty days, he has this encounter with Satan, where Satan tempts him three times, trying to cause him to fall. And if you just keep reading through the Gospels over and over again, he's encountering these the demons, demonic agencies. You have this kingdom of darkness. You have him referencing uh, many times uh, in the book of John later, referring to Satan as the ruler of this world. Uh, but one place that I would go, probably the, the quickest, the easiest place to show somebody the cosmic conflict is Jesus' Jesus's parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. And in that parable, uh, he tells a parable of, of a landowner who sows good seeds in his field, but then uh, during the night, his enemy comes and sows tares in the field, which are like like noxic weeds, right? They're they're bad. Uh, and then uh, after a while, uh, the the wheat grow, but then also the tares grow and they spring up among the wheat. And the landowner say, "Wait, why are these tares in your field? Did you didn't you sow good seed in your field? Why then are these tares?" Which is analogous to the question people ask today: Didn't God create a good world? Why is there evil in it? Right? And the response of the landowner is, an enemy has done this. Mm -hmm. And if you if you keep reading, we don't have to guess who the parable is signifying because later when he's explaining it, he just says the landowner is the son of man himself and the enemy is the devil. And so it's just an explicit, uh, explicit story about a cosmic conflict. And as the story goes on, the, the servants then ask, well then, do you want us to gather them up? In other words, if there's evil and it's the enemy who's done it, why don't you just destroy the enemy, just uproot the evil? And he says, no, because if you up the, uproot the tares, you might uproot some wheat with them. And so somehow the tares are entangled with the wheat such that uprooting the tares prematurely would, would lead to some collateral damage, uh, which if you draw the analogy, it seems like if God were to deal with evil in a premature way in this world, it would also uh, – cause some collateral damage. In any case, that's kind of a one place where the cosmic conflict is just painted as a picture. But if you just go through the New Testament, you have this going all the way to Revelation where you have the dragon ruler, uh, Satan and his angels warring against uh, Michael uh, and his angels in Revelation 12. You have the dragon being this uh, ruler behind uh, these forces that are persecuting God's people. And then it's all over the Old Testament as well. That's uh, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, I think is like you said, not only a clear example, but it's on the lips of Jesus. Yeah. Not that the, the rest of the Bible is somehow discounted, but no, um, right. I, I, I just think that that's so, uh, such a clear case of, of a kind of story of where evil comes from and, and yeah. what God's doing with it. So uh, yeah. why, why it's here. Um, yeah, the shortest, in my opinion, the shortest, <laughs> the shortest explanation of a cosmic conflict approach to the problem of evil is just an enemy has done this. And those yeah. are just Jesus' words. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the Old Testament. I want to elaborate on this just a little. I don't want to spend so much time that we miss the rest of the theodicy, but feel sure. free to elaborate as much as you want. Sure. But part of what I uh, learned in the Michael Heiser book is this concept of um, the divine counsel. Mm -hmm. And so you incorporate uh, – now, I know you don't call it divine counsel, and you can explain why you don't prefer mm -hmm. that label – but we're talking about the same thing. Uh, yes. Where do they figure into this picture of uh, the tares, if, if that's the analogy we're using in, in Jesus' parable? Yeah. Yeah, so a couple of things kind of, kind of as background that might be helpful. You have all, 
all throughout the Old Testament. And it's interesting to me because I remember uh, reading Old Testament narratives and you come across like the gods of the nations, the pagan gods, or you come across idols. And I would just kind of read them like I think most Westerners read them and just say, oh, the gods, they're, they're fake. There's nothing there, right? Or idols, they don't really exist. Uh, but actually, if you read closer in the Old Testament, it signals in places like Deuteronomy 32, 17 and elsewhere that the gods of the nations and also the, the gods that Israel fell into idolatry with, behind those gods were actually demons. So there's real supernatural forces at work. And actually, all of the references to gods of the nations, all of what God is very concerned with, this is like the number one sin in the Old Testament, uh, which is idolatry and worshiping of false gods. This is These are all cosmic conflict examples, all part of the cosmic conflict paradigm. Uh, and and, and with embedded in that this, this view of these celestial beings, these gods, small g, uh, they're not the supreme god, the one god, uh, but you have these celestial beings that are actually active in the world, actually masquerading as gods, actually having some rulership in the world. And this is bound up with a motif that appears frequently throughout the Old Testament and is also very prominent in ancient Eastern literature, uh, which is often referred to among Old Testament scholars as the divine council. Uh, I don't have anything against that label. I just prefer to reserve the word divine for the one true God who's the creator of everything. Uh, but what they mean by that is just supernatural beings or celestial beings. So I call it the heavenly council to refer to the same thing. But the heavenly council appears in a number of passages. One of the, one of the clearest ones and most well-known ones is the book of Job, where you have... Uh, the sons of God, it's referred to there in Job 1, verse 6, uh, came to appear before God, and then the Satan also came among them. And this uh, this council, this gathering, this courtroom scene is what it really is, uh, is one example of this heavenly council of celestial beings that seem to have some, some say-so or some role to play in the governance, governance of the world, uh, and actually is set up uh, as a kind of cosmic courtroom. Uh, where in the book of Job, at least, Satan is coming to bring an allegation, uh, not just to God, but before this court. In fact, I think uh, many people, when they read the story of Job, like Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, they make a mistake of forgetting that there's this larger courtroom scene. There's a number of celestial beings there called the sons of God. Uh, it's not just a dialogue between God and Satan. Much more is going on in the background. Perfect. And since you brought up uh, Satan, I know in in that particular uh, passage, he's called mm -hmm. the Satan. Yes. And so you can elaborate on that. And what's his function in this courtroom's drama? Yeah. So so in that in Job chapter one, chapter two, and Zechariah three, uh, these are the the main places where you see the this figure that's referred to as Ha Satan in Hebrew, which is the article Ha and Satan. Uh, which means the adversary. Some people think it means the accuser. Uh, in any case, uh, and so it, it literally says the Satan. And so some people say this is not a proper name because you wouldn't normally have the article before a name. It's it's more likely a title. Uh, there's there's some disputes about that because in the New Testament, of course, Greek is different. Uh, in the New Testament, he's also referred to as the Satan uh, most of the time when he's referred to, even though it's translated as a name there. Uh, but they say it's a title given to him, and the title is the accuser or the adversary. And this is the role that he plays in the Heavenly Council, uh, being the accuser. Uh, I go go through this uh, in the book, um, just trying to take it on, on its own terms. And I think there's evidence of just the way the Satan responds to God, both in Job 1 and 2, and also in Zechariah 3, that show that he is antagonistic to God. 
So even if this is a title, even if it means the accuser, mm -hmm. it's not as some Old Testament scholars have suggested. It's not that he is a benign accuser or somebody playing a divinely sanctioned role that God wants him to play because he's actually antagonizing uh, God before the heavenly council. He's actually accusing God before the heavenly council, and he's very much setting himself in opposition. Uh, it very well may be, it may or may not be, but it may just be a title. It might mean the accuser, and that title just becomes a proper name. That wouldn't be unusual. Uh, you could have like a coach of the basketball team. He's the coach of the team, and then he just gets called coach, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that even if you recognize that, even if you think this is a title in the Old Testament, uh, if you compare, and I try to do this in the book, you compare the way the Satan actually functions in the Old Testament in these scenes. And then you look at his MO or his profile in the New Testament. It's very, very similar. In the New Testament, uh, the devil, the Greek term for devil, diabolos, just means the slanderer. And he is called in Revelation 12 the accuser of the brethren. And this is just exactly what he's what the, what the Satan is doing in the Old Testament. So I think it's the same individual that's being referred to um, in the story of Job, in Zechariah 3, uh, and I think actually it matches the MO of Satan in the New Testament quite well. Okay, perfect. So um, what is going on? I mean, we know what uh, the Satan is doing uh, based on what you just described, the slandering, accusing, adversarial role. Mm -hmm. What's going on with these other sons of God? What are they doing? Yeah. Yeah, so we're not given a lot of information about what what they what they do. Uh, they appear in a number of different passages, uh, like like Psalm eighty two. You have First uh, Kings uh, twenty twenty two, I think it is. Uh, a number of other places. You have a heavenly court scene in Daniel seven. You have these watchers that show up in Daniel four, and you have even what happens to Nebuchadnezzar when he's when he's made like a wild beast. It says. In one place it says this is by the decree of God, but then another place says this is by the decree of the watchers. So all of these suggest that they have some kind of of responsibilities in this courtroom setting, some kind of responsibilities of governance. Uh, in the case of the book of Job, the book of Job is is one of the most elaborate examples. I think by reflecting on the case of Job, we can see what, what function they might be playing, at least one of the functions that they're playing there. Uh, when in the book of Job, when Job, Job comes, we're told already before before the heavenly council scene begins in verse six that Job is very prosperous. He's called the blameless and upright man. And then in verse six, you have uh, it just says that the sons of God, the celestial beings in the heavenly council, came to present themselves before God, and the Satan also came among them. And God asked him this question: Have you considered my servant Job? A question that doesn't make very much sense uh, if there's not already some ongoing conversation, some ongoing dispute, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and he doesn't just say, he considered my servant Job, he says, there's no one like him in all the earth, he's blameless, he's upright. So right off the bat, God judges Job to be blameless. And the Satan immediately challenges that claim. Uh, and he says, basically, he says, he only appears to serve you uh, for good motivations. He really just serves you out of fear. If you were to actually stop blessing him, if you didn't, uh, Satan says that God has put a hedge around him or a fence around him. And he says, if you weren't protecting him and blessing him, uh, he would curse you to your face. So you have this conflict and it appears that sa the Satan is actually raising an allegation in this heavenly court. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously an allegation against Job's character. Everyone recognizes that. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's also indirectly an accusation against God's character because God has already declared before the heavenly council, before the sons of God, that Job is blameless and upright. 
And the Satan is basically saying, no, he's not really. And I could prove that if you weren't protecting him, if there wasn't a hedge around him, if you would, if you would let harm come to him or let me harm him, I could prove that your judgment of Job is, is false, which means, of course, God is not a righteous judge. He's not ruling with full justice. His character is not really entirely good and entirely just. So I think that the, at least in that setting, uh, part of what the heavenly council is functioning is as a heavenly court. And many scholars recognize the heavenly court in Revelation is is the, the parallel body in the New Testament. And so they're there at least for some kind of a, a judgment context with regard to the affairs in this world. Yeah. And I'll just mention this uh, briefly, too, and, and, and we may tie in uh, as well later. But it seems that these sons of God uh, are in control of, of certain territories. I know you, you mentioned that, but like uh, in Daniel— yeah. There's a prince of a certain territory. Is it yes. the prince of Persia? Is that, is that... Yes, yes. Okay. Daniel 10, the prince of um, Persia. So it's like these sons of God are um, th on the spiritual end of these earthly rulers. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're standing behind them, kind of overseeing things over this certain territory. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll get into that a little bit more. I have a question about like jurisdiction that'll, that'll come up in a little bit. But um, mm -hmm. okay, so that kind of gives us this framework for cosmic conflict. So we talked a little bit about how God uh, doesn't always get what he wants. So there's he, he has this ideal will, um, but once he sprinkles in the, the ingredient of free will, um, he's, you know, he, he has to try and remedy some situations. So he has this remedial will. And it's in that context that we have these wills that oppose God. And that's where this cosmic conflict comes into view. I hope I've summarized that decently. Um, yeah. Now, what is the nature of the conflict? Um, is this a power struggle? Is it like, you know, Satan's like, I'm going to use force to try and oppose you. And is God like, I'm going to use force to try and snuff you out or, or put you down or something? Or is it something else going on? Yeah, yeah. Something else is going on. It's very important to recognize that the, the conflict is a conflict between God, the only true God, who is all-powerful, among other things, and mere creatures. And it has a beginning, and it has an end. It's a finite conflict. Um, and of course, uh, a cosmic conflict wouldn't make any sense if it was a conflict of sheer power, because no one could actually oppose God at the level of sheer power. He's all-powerful, right? And so this is why some people uh, may, not, may misunderstand what the cosmic conflict is and may dismiss it prematurely, because if it was a conflict of sheer power— there could be no conflict. But actually, I think there's a lot of biblical evidence that the conflict is a conflict of character, particularly a conflict about the character of God based on the slanderous allegations that have been raised by the devil against God's character. And that kind of a conflict cannot actually be resolved by merely the show of brute force or power. Uh, because you, if somebody accuses you of being corrupt, you can't actually defeat their allegations by exercising your power. That will actually just make you look more corrupt if you were to do, do something like that. So I think there's a great deal of evidence in the Bible that the conflict is a conflict of character. Uh, and because God has granted creatures free will, that free will includes what I call epistemic freedom, freedom of belief, freedom to choose, freedom to recognize God's goodness, God's love, or to decide that one doesn't believe that God is really good and is really loving. And if you have that kind of a context, which involves also celestial creatures, then you, you can have a very robust conflict that isn't a conflict merely of power. 
And there's a setting for that or parameters for that kind of conflict, because to the extent that God grants creatures free will, even epistemic freedom, there's room for this kind of conflict that's a, a conflict over allegations against God's character. I hope that's making making sense. Yeah, and, and I want to, um, before we get into the rules of engagement, I want to just uh, let you uh, explain one particular passage where you think this idea of epistemic conflict over, mm-hmm. um, would you call it ontological conflict or, or this power struggle? Um, yeah, more than, yeah. Yeah. Before we go to that passage, I picked out this little quote from the book. Uh, you said, two essential features of the conflict are uh, these. One, cosmic charges against God's character. So there's that, that character part you mentioned. And mm-hmm. two, the enemy's desire to usurp uh, God's worship as king. Yes. So pick out, uh, it doesn't have to be just one passage if you want to use a couple, where this epistemic conflict is really clearly displayed. Yeah, so, so you have this epistemic conflict uh, in, in the very temptations of Jesus, where you have these uh, three temptations, and what Satan is trying to do, especially with the one where he shows him all the kingdoms of this world, and he basically says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms and their glory. Uh, in the Luke account, Luke 4, it says, uh, all this has been given over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And basically, he wants to get Jesus to bow down to him because he's trying to usurp worship. And this raises a question of, the whole question is, are you really the son of God? Uh, Are you really who you say you are? And it's uh, a a conflict not just of force, but it's a conflict of decisions. Uh, It's also very clear, and perhaps even more clear in the Genesis 3 story, the story of the fall uh, of Adam and Eve, you have uh, Eve encountering this serpent. Um, and the serpent isn't identified in Genesis 3. It's identified later. Revelation 12 says, refers to him as the serpent of old, uh, refers to Satan as the serpent of old. Uh, but in Genesis 3, you just have this serpent uh, who is at this uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he asks Eve this question, uh, did God really say uh, that you cannot eat from any fruit, any tree of the garden? Which is almost the exact opposite of what God actually said, right? Because he had actually said, you can eat from any tree of the garden except for one. Uh, so she, she corrects him, and of course, uh, he then bring, he brings her into dialogue by forcing her to correct, correct him. Uh, she corrects him and, and then says, uh, we're not to eat from this tree or touch it, lest we will die. And the serpent replies by saying, you surely will not die, which is the same as saying God is a liar. Mm-hmm. He's lying to you, right? And so already there you have the slanderous charge. And God has a, dis- uh, rather, Eve has a decision to make uh, at that moment and from that moment onward. Because at that point, someone must be lying. Mm-hmm. Either God is lying or the serpent is lying, but someone must be a liar. And she has an epistemic choice to make of whom she will believe. The serpent doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't just say, you surely will not die, which effectively say God is a liar. He then gives a motivation for God lying. Because he says, uh, God knows that at the moment you eat from it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Right. And so he basically tries to say God is lying to you and he's lying to you because he wants to keep you under his thumb. He wants to oppress you. He doesn't really want what is best for you, Mm -hmm. which is, again, a slanderous charge against God's character and against God's government. And Eve has a choice to make. And this choice is all all throughout the Bible as well, all the way in the New Testament, where among the things Jesus says he came to do, he came to testify to the truth. And you have this language of 
the apostles and followers of Christ as as witnesses, as as martyrs, and this legal trial language of testifying to the truth. Mm. Uh, so all throughout Scripture, there's this epistemic question that is settled ultimately by by the cross, uh, at least proleptically by the cross. It's this uh, epistemic conflict. Perfect. I think that's a really good uh, way of explaining the epistemic nature of the conflict. Okay, so go ahead and uh, lay out then, uh, since we've got these opposing wills to God, there's this conflict and it's epistemic in nature. What are the the parameters that, that are in place uh, put there by God, um, or you call them the rules of engagement, that, yeah. um, that this conflict plays out under? Yeah. Well, given the fact that no one could oppose God at the level of sheer power, and no one could actually uh, actually engage in a conflict against God's kingdom unless there are some parameters within which they could work, right? Because God could always thwart them at every turn by using his power, and they wouldn't really get anywhere at all, even, even just an epistemic conflict. So for lack of a better phrase, I refer to the parameters of the conflict in which Satan and his minions are permitted to work as the rules of engagement. And these are parameters within which the enemy is allowed to make his case, allowed to uh, raise his allegations and try to demonstrate them against God's kingdom. And they are non-arbitrary parameters. And I think there's good evidence that they are parameters that are not unilaterally set by God. They're actually uh, parameters or rules that are actually uh, come out of the proceedings of the heavenly council. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, going back to the story of Job as one example you have, again, towards the beginning of the dialogue, Satan claiming that God has put a hedge around Job, right? And that suggests there were limits on what Satan could do. And Satan basically says, if those limits were changed, I would be able to actually make my case. Mm-hmm. And God allows those limits to be changed. But he doesn't do it unilaterally. He does it before the heavenly council, I think, in a way that takes into account the other minds that are involved, right? And mm-hmm. Because basically, if, if he doesn't do anything— then Satan's charge just hangs there, right? So you're not you're not allowing me to make my case. If I was allowed to make my case, I would be able to prove your allegations false. So that suggests that there are these parameters, these rules of engagement. Now on Satan's side, the rules of engagement are actually restricting him ontologically. He he can't he can't go against them because he lacks the power. So right. if God says these are the boundaries, that's as much as he can do. Uh, from God's side, they're not ontological restrictions. God remains all powerful. There are moral restrictions because if God makes a promise or makes a commitment, he will always keep that commitment. And that's why I refer to them in the book as covenantal rules of engagement. I don't mean them as covenantal in the technical sense of an Old Testament covenant. I mean them in the sense of a, a, a an agreement between at least two or more parties or a particular thing that can't be changed unilaterally by one side or the other. On Satan's side, he can't change it because he lacks the power. On God's side, he can't change it unilaterally because it would not it would be immoral for him to do so. And that's another place where the heavenly council comes in because this seems to take place. Uh, so they seem to be set, and in the case of Job, modified uh, before the heavenly council. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Uh, so I want to ask you this question then, um, and and you can appeal again to the moral thing i can anticipate the answer but um why would god not just revoke these commitments uh and just directly reveal his goodness to settle this whole conflict yeah 
Yeah, so I think I think the reason he wouldn't remote revoke the rules of engagement is because that would just be to play into the hands of the allegations, right? Uh, Sane's allegation is you're, you're you're not a good character, you're not really fair, and if God were just to revoke the rules and say, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the rules in midstream, so to speak, uh, that would just be both patently unfair uh, and also would go against his own word. And yeah. according to the Bible, you know, Sane's God is without, right. You're not trustworthy. You tell me that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And God, God cannot lie, right? He always keeps his promises. He cannot deny himself. The, the Bible's very clear. And so this appears to be one of the things that God, God cannot do uh, in keeping with his character is to actually go back on his word. And so to the extent that he makes those commitments, uh, he's going to keep them uh, just as a function of his goodness. When it comes to why God can't just give some kind of a divine special revelation of his goodness um, outside of like a demonstration— uh, which he does. He does give that demonstration in the cross and in the history of the world. But why he doesn't just 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 handle it through one kind of, of declaration? Well, here again, I think if the confidence is epistemic, that means that creatures that suggests that creatures have epistemic freedom. Now, I think uh, something I should, probably should have mentioned earlier is I think that uh, the value of free will, as I understand it, isn't just the value of free will alone. It's the value of free will as an instrumental value that's necessary for genuine love relationship, right? So I think, and I won't go into the details here, but I think even a case can be made made for that uh, that's rooted in scripture that love, genuine love relationship requires a libertarian kind of free will. And that libertarian kind of free will requires epistemic freedom. If, it, if that is true, then God can't just make it the case that you or I or someone else uh, re- recognizes that he's good immediately. That would be determined to determine our will in a way that would undermine love, right? So uh, if you think of any love relationship, uh, like between myself and my wife, if I was able to control everything she thought or just control what she believed, obviously she wouldn't be free to love me freely, right? Mm-hmm. And if love requires that kind of freedom, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be that kind of love. So so God is not going to just override the faculties of creatures when it comes to recognizing his goodness and just declaring that I'm entirely good won't work because that's the very question at hand. Those are the allegations that have been raised. That question has already been raised, and at least some, Satan and his minions, have are putting forth that question. And so to just say a simple declaration would resolve it. If that was the case, well, then there wouldn't be any conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is it hasn't resolved it. Satan continues to make his allegations, continue to press his case. Uh, so an epistemic conflict doesn't appear to be resolvable in that fashion. Instead of a simple declaration or a defeating of the claims by brute force, which wouldn't work, it would only make the claims work, uh, what seems to be necessary is a demonstration of character, a demonstration of what God is really like in a way that can be manifested to the universe that once and for all defeats the claims of Satan and his minions. And what is that demonstration? I think the demonstration is the, is the cross. Uh, not only the cross, it's the way God has worked throughout history, but the cross is the ultimate demonstration. According to Romans 3, uh, Romans 3, 25 and 26, Paul talks about uh, God setting forth Christ as this hilasterian, sometimes sometimes translated uh, propitiation, uh, to demonstrate his righteousness. And it says it twice in those two verses, to demonstrate, I say, his righteousness at the present time. And then just two chapters later in Romans 5, 8, uh, Paul again says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what Christ does at the cross through the entire incarnation, all of his ministry in the cross, shows that God is who he says he is. He is entirely righteous. He is entirely loving. He upholds all the standards of justice at the same time that he makes a way to save us. In Romans 3, it says he does it so he can be both the just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he upholds the righteous principles of his government at the same time that he makes a way for sinners to be reconciled with him in the atonement. Um, and then all throughout uh, the all throughout the scriptures and everything God does, he demonstrates that he is truly just. And the way that I sometimes explain it and emphasize is even if we didn't know anything else about how to resolve the problem of evil or how to address the problem of evil, if you look at the God of the cross, the God who's willing to condescend to become a human and actually suffer on the cross for us, uh, does it of his own initiative, does it freely. Number one, a God like that can be trusted. And number two, if there was any other way for him to defeat uh, to reconcile us to himself and defeat uh, the enemy in the cosmic conflict, wouldn't he have chosen it? Hmm. And for those that wonder, is that really what Jesus is doing? Uh, I wouldn't in any way reduce Christ's work to this, not at all. I think the atonement is multifaceted. The Bible teaches many different uh, facets of the atonement. Um, but one facet of the atonement is the defeating of Satan's claims. And this is just said explicitly in 1 John 3, 8, uh, in Hebrews 2, 14, I think it is in both places, uh, in, in, it says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil or to remove the power of the devil. That's not the only reason he came. That's not the only thing he accomplished, but this is one of the things that he accomplishes in the atonement. And this just defeats the allegations of the enemy at the cross once and for all. Hmm. Yeah, that's just so powerful to me. Um, and I, I love it because it is a, um, a, a lot of times the discussions on the problem of evil can become uh more on the philosophical side mm -hmm. and uh and that's good i appreciate that part but you yes. almost lose the um specifically christian picture uh right. and you lose the cross and that's what yes. i i loved about the book is that it is uh christocentric it's it's very christ-centered on his work and uh it just illuminates so many things so mm -hmm. uh, i can't mm -hmm. say enough good things about it uh, well, now, that's one of the things I was trying to do was try to bring uh, biblical material, philosophical and theological material together. Yeah. And, I, and I should have probably said in regard to that, that uh, one evidence for the fact that this is what the cross event does is in Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11, where it talks about uh, Satan being thrown down. And many New Testament scholars recognize that being thrown down to being on the basis of the cross event, which is what is suggested in verse 11, that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. So in the cross, it actually throws down Satan. And many scholars of Revelation see this as actually a, a, a description of Satan being banished from the heavenly council. So it's like the, the allegations are defeated in the heavenly council by the cross event, and he's actually excommunicated from the heavenly council at that time. Mm. So, so just so those who might be watching or listening don't think this is just a story constructed uh, at a second or third level, there's actually quite robust biblical evidence uh, right. for this kind of view. Yeah, and, and that's why I keep trying to ask along the way like what scripture you would bring in so i feel mm -hmm. like you've got scripture that's supporting each point in this theodicy uh each element here so uh here's a, a kind of summary statement that i'll make about the rules of engagement a quote from you and then i want to uh, ask just a couple more questions for those still um watching we are getting close to the end we're right at about the hour mark so be uh thinking of your questions and then go ahead and, and write them in the chat right now because uh, probably within about 10 minutes I'll have wrapped this up and, and we can start answering your questions. Um, so here was what I was going to ask next. Um, or I was going to give you the quote. 
sorry, my computer uh, froze up on the quote. One second. Come back to me, Internet. Well, while it's working, I will ask this. You said Satan being thrown down. So this was mm -hmm. going to be my next question. Yeah. Uh, if Satan's been thrown down and uh, you have a chapter in the book called um, uh, something like evil defeated but not yet destroyed. Yes, so exactly. What is the role of Satan at this point? Why is there still evil? Mm -hmm. um, how would you, what do you, what argument do you develop in that chapter? Yeah, yeah. So evil is defeated at the cross, but not yet destroyed because Satan still has some limited jurisdiction. Uh, so in one sense, the kingdom of heaven has come in Christ. It's been kind of inaugurated, uh, but there's a lot left to do, which includes the proclamation of the gospel and many other things uh, that the New Testament begins. Uh, but you have this just just in the New Testament, uh, also in Revelation 12, it just says that Satan, uh, no, it talks about him being wroth with the woman, which is representing the people of God, God's followers. And then it says he he goes off uh, to persecute her, and he's, he's angry because he knows that his time is short. And so uh, he knows that he has a limited time uh, to make his case, to work his evil in this world. We don't know how much time that is. We don't know all the reasons why, why that time continues. Uh, but we do see uh, evidence that there is that there is this time that both God knows and Satan knows. Satan knows his time is short. You have another instance in the book of Matthew where you have uh, this this uh, demons uh, possessing humans. They encounter uh, Jesus and they say, you know, we know who you are, the son of God. And they say to him, have you come to torment us before the time? Which suggests to me that there is, again, appointed parameters, appointed times, some appointed jurisdiction. Uh, that they have during this time between the times. Uh, so it's defeated, but the ultimate destruction is eschatological. And in the end, once all of the allegations are defeated, everything that needs to take place in the plan of redemption takes place, both in earth and in heaven, then finally God will exercise his power to destroy evil, but only after all the questions have been answered, right? And so all of the epistemic claims have been settled, and then God will uh, actually eradicate evil and then usher in an age where there will no longer be uh, any more suffering, any more tears, no more death, no more pain, as Revelation 21.4 puts it. Uh, these, the former things are no more. Mm. Um, okay, last, uh, last two questions here. What is our role? Like, how can we have an influence as followers of Christ? What is our role in uh, playing out this kind of courtroom? Would you even say... Um, that this courtroom drama drama is still going on since Satan's been basically kicked out. He's not allowed to go around accusing. Uh, mm -hmm. What's our role in that? Yeah, there's still a courtroom drama going on. It's it's changed since the cross event and changed in ways that we're we're not fully privy to. Uh, but I think that one of the big practical implications of a cosmic conflict perspective uh, is that there's a role for us to play with regard to both proclamation and the way that we live our lives. So first of all, there's the proclamation of the goodness of God, of his character, of uh, this larger story of what's actually taking place uh, in this world. But also, if it's really the case that there are a number of things happening in the world that God doesn't want to happen, right? Uh, there may be things that God wants to prevent, but for God to prevent them would either contravene the kind of free will he's granted creatures or at a second level, go against those rules of engagement that he's morally committed himself to. So there might be evils in the world that, that God would like to prevent, but he's morally bound not to prevent, 
but we could prevent if we were willing to actually do the right thing. And there's many cases where we could stop evil, we could stop oppression, we could introduce and bring uh, good into the world. And I think a cosmic conflict approach should remind us uh, that we are not only to proclaim the good, good news, but actually to be uh, the hands and feet of Christ, as it were, where actually there's actually uh, a conflict going on. I, I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it, where he says, uh, this world is enemy territory, and we're part of the resistance, right? He has this, this cosmic conflict motif, we're part of the resistance. And I think one of the ways we resist is by actually trying to bring good into the world and change the course of history for the better. Rather than being resigned to just saying everything happens the way God wants it to happen, there's actually a lot of things that we could be doing uh, as the hands and feet of Christ, so to speak, uh, actually living the way uh, someone who is a follower of Christ should live. Very good. Okay, I've got that quote now about the uh, rules of engagement, so I'll read it, and then I'll, I'll basically ask you to sum up. Um, this was the quote, put briefly in from your book, uh, put briefly, in any instance where God does not intervene to prevent mm. some horrendous evil, uh, to do so might have, one, been against the rules, two, impinged on creaturely free will in a way that would undercut the love relationship, or three, resulted in greater evil or less flourishing of love. Mm. I thought that was a very nice... Um, way of, of kind of giving you a, a, a picture of, of the kind of parameters that God's working within. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so to sum up then, explain uh, or, or to, to leave the viewer with kind of, you know, just a, a, a bulleted list of what are the planks mm -hmm. in the theodicy of love. Yeah. Yeah, so I... I typically can – the simplest way to sum it up is like in seven points. So number one, there are many things we do not know. So at the beginning of the conversation, the end, there's there's many things we don't know. And so some things we just don't have answers for. But secondly, I think there's very good evidence that God does not always get what he wants. Number three, God grants and respects free will even when creatures do evil because it's a necessary prerequisite of love. Number four, there's more to the story beyond just the free will of humans, a cosmic conflict. Number five, in this cosmic conflict, there are rules of engagement, parameters agreed upon in the heavenly court within which the allegations raised against God can be settled without damaging love. Number six, God, do God always does everything he can, given the alternatives, to bring about the best good for all of us, and he will finally eradicate evil forevermore. And number seven, in the meantime, we can look to the cross and have confidence that this God suffers with us and can be trusted. Hmm. And there I often uh, mention this, this parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, where basically God asks uh, his people, what more could I have done for my vineyard, which is, which is symbolizing his people? What more could I have done that I, that I have not done? And this very same parable is picked up by Jesus in the book of Matthew, where he talks about uh, these uh, servants of the landowner actually uh, beating his servants and then finally killing his son. And you have this question ringing, what more could he do? And what more could he do than actually send himself in, in, the, in the Christ event? So once again, uh, coming full circle, uh, I do think there's, there's a good, a good parameters for trying to make sense of how God could be good in light of the kind of evil we see in the world. 
I think free will goes a long way, uh, especially if free will is necessary for love. I think this larger story of the cosmic conflict uh, is very important. Uh, but finally, I think look to the cross because it's there that we see the character of God that gives us confidence, even if we don't know how to answer all of the questions the way we would want to answer them uh, with so much specificity. Yeah. And I'll, I'll leave with this quote from the book and we'll start the questions. Um, and that was, uh, had there been a preferable way, God would have chosen it particularly mm -hmm. considering the incalculable cost to himself at the cross and otherwise. thought that was very good. Mm. Okay. Well, that's the end of um, the book, basically. We, we ran through the, the book. Obviously, we want to encourage you to go and buy it because it's a much, much more uh, deep when you read it. And... Um, I think you'll be spiritually enriched uh, reading it. But um, let's turn to your questions. We've got two people still watching, um, but the good thing is this video is around afterward. More and more will watch. So someone named uh, Son of O said, uh, just curious, is John a Molinist? Yeah, great question. So, so I think... So I do, I do believe that God has exhaustive, definite foreknowledge, that God knows with certainty the future free decisions of creatures. I don't know that the Bible gives a definitive account of how God has that knowledge. I think that Molinism is a plausible account and maybe the best account of the existing accounts. Um, and so I I am favorable towards Molinism, just for those who don't know what Molinism is. Uh, Molinism is a name for an account of God's knowledge that appeals to something called middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is God's knowledge of what creatures would freely do in any given situation. And I think there, there is some biblical evidence that God has middle knowledge, knowledge of what any creature would freely do in any given situation. And if he has knowledge of what any creature would freely do, then combining that with his knowledge of all necessary effects, uh, adding to that his own decisions of what he will do in particular situations would give him knowledge of everything that would occur. Uh, so I am favorable to Molinism. I'm not dogmatically committed just because uh, I'm, I'm not sure that we know how God knows the future. But of the existing accounts, I think that might be the best one. Gotcha. Um, Son of O, same person, asked this follow-up question. He says, does John believe that we will have libertarian free will in heaven? And what will prevent us from sinning in heaven? Great. Yeah, great question. So I do believe that uh, in the afterlife in heaven, creatures will have libertarian free will. Um, I, I think uh, I think actually libertarian free will is necessary to the maximal flourishing of love. I think if there could be an afterlife without that kind of free will, that would be uh, just as good or better then uh, you would think that God would just create us with whatever kind of will we have then. Why go through all this? You will. Yeah. But that does raise the question then, what about, uh, what about the possibility that evil would arise a second time? And I think two things are important to mention here. I think, first of all, number one, there will have been the uh, universal demonstration of God's character in the history of redemption uh, that I think would serve to inoculate the universe against evil. All minds would have seen once and for all that God is entirely just and entirely good. And then I think, uh, I don't think that there is something that ontologically constrains creatures 
from exercising their freedom negatively. But I think we can be sure that no one ever will because I do believe that God has exhaustive definite foreknowledge. And I think that we have good reason biblically to believe that evil will not rise a second time, that there will be no more suffering, no more tears, uh, as Revelation 21 puts it. Um, so if God knows with absolute certainty that no one will ever exercise their freedom negatively again, I think that epistemologically renders it certain that uh, evil will not arise a second time. And I think the history of redemption uh, plays a role in inoculating the universe against uh, evil arising again. Very good. Um, I think that was the last question from a viewer. So I have, I guess, three questions that I was curious about. I, I'll spring on you here. Uh, so first one, um, I remember when I, this was a, a few years ago now, I was reading Job and I noticed that it said that Satan sent the whirlwind. Hmm. And I remember reading that and thinking, what if Satan were the one that sent a hurricane or, you know, started these things? Um, now, if you ask me, what do I think now? I guess I, I'm not sure. And just trying to apply this theodicy, what do you think? Would you say that the members of this council or at least um, minions of Satan, Satan himself, are actually causing perhaps what we would traditionally call natural evil, but once you make it the act of a moral agent, it becomes a moral evil. Would you say they're causing these things, or how would you understand it? So I think a two-pronged account is is most helpful. I mean, we do have some evidence throughout Scripture that some things that are called natural disasters are actually caused uh, by supernatural beings. In some cases, uh, some things are attributed to God himself. I think there's evidence that Satan and his minions, at least in some cases, might be behind some of those events. I wouldn't want to extrapolate from that to say that all such so-called natural disasters are, because I think probably a crucial part of a cosmic conflict view is going to be that given some fall event, the fall of creatures into evil, somehow uh, affects the actual way that nature is, that nature has fallen to a state where it doesn't function the way that God ideally wanted it to function. Uh, so there's some corruption in nature. This is quite explicit in the way Genesis 3 talks about the curses uh, after the fall. And uh, you have a number of philosophers that suggest that uh, this can throw the universe into disequilibrium. You could have uh, some demonic, some, some things done by demonic agencies that also introduce uh, powers and forces into nature that actually result in some of these so-called natural evils. So it could be that uh, some of the things that occur are just the working out of the laws and forces of nature that have been thrown into disarray or thrown into disequilibrium to a certain extent. And others could be uh, special instances of supernatural forces. And in any given case, uh, I, I just wouldn't wouldn't know uh, what what is causing them or what is behind them mm -hmm. without without divine revelation. So your theodicy doesn't rule out like greater good kind of appeals, like God could have uh, by God allowing a hurricane. It's not that Satan sent it. I don't know that we want to say God sent. I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know if that gets God into trouble somehow or, or any sense. But you could have these greater goods that come from evil on your theodicy, right? Um, 
but it doesn't seem to me that you like appeal to those a whole lot in the book. Your focus is kind of elsewhere. Yeah. So in my view, God can bring goods out of evil, but God doesn't need evil to bring about good. So I do think that there's a kind of greater good approach. I think the greater good is love. But the difference between that approach and, say, what's sometimes called Felix Culpa theodicies, Felix Culpa theodicies say that it was it was a happy fault or it was good that evil came because more good comes out of that evil. Um, that's not my view. I think that the possibility of evil is necessary for this greater good of love. But the actuality of evil was not necessary. It theoretically could have been the case that no creature who ever existed ever exercises their will uh, to go against God's ideal will. And I don't think that evil is necessary to bring about uh, some some overarching greater good. But given the fact that there is evil introduced into the world, uh, I do think that God can bring some goods out of out of particular evils. Uh, but I I don't think that they're necessary uh, for goods. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, last two questions. Uh, Son of O has one more, then I'll uh, ask one last one at the end here. Uh, he said, uh, does John grant that gratuitous evil exists? Either way, whether you do or not, how do you answer the problem of gratuitous evil? What is it? Explain that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so gratuitous evil is an instance of evil without which the world on the whole would have been better. So those who deny gratuitous evil would have to say that every single event of evil, if that was to be prevented, whether by God or by us, the world as a whole, by which I mean the entire timeline of the universe, would be worse off. So every evil itself immediately has to be for some greater good. Uh, that's not that's not the view that I hold. Um, I worry about that kind of a view. Um, I think that Paul's words where he says, should we do more evil so good may come of it? And he says, certainly not. Uh, I think may, may apply there. Uh, because if every instance of evil, if only instances of evil that, that God permits, if we want to use that language, are for a greater good, then any evil that I would do would actually introduce more good into the world, and evil kind of becomes like like an instrumental good. Mm. Um, and this is why I think the rules of engagement uh, kind of approach is so helpful, because then you would say, well, why doesn't God only permit evils that are going to bring about an immediate kind of proximal greater good? And I think the reason for that is because there's these larger parameters that are non-arbitrary. Uh, and these larger parameters are set up for the, for the greater good of demonstrating God's character. That greater good itself wasn't necessary because it's only brought about by the allegations raised by the enemy. So it only becomes necessary like with a small n once the conflict is already under, undergo, undergoing. Uh, and those parameters are necessary for God to give a fair context for those allegations to actually be settled once and for all. And so there may be many things that fall within those parameters that God doesn't ideally want that aren't actually themselves better in any immediate way, right? It would be better if those things were stopped than not. But for God to prevent them would go against the rules of engagement. So morally he cannot, whereas we might be able to stop them. So I think there, there could be a, num a number of gratuitous evils that fall uh, within the rules of engagement uh, on that kind of a, of a scenario. That's Hopefully that's sense yep uh and the last uh question here is is about the pastoral problem of evil so this book wasn't intended like you said at the outset to address mm -hmm. a particular instance of evil so if someone you know 
uh, a close friend of theirs died tragically in a car accident. You're not wanting to say, well, no. blah, 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 and start rattling off why that happened. Correct. Um, so uh, maybe you could encourage uh, the viewers and even me. Like, I know I find myself kind of at mm. a loss for uh, what to... I guess this is my struggle. So I know you say this, and, and I've heard this from pastors. It's like Job's friend's mistake was yeah. that they tried to give the rationale, and they spoke too soon. They should have just sat there and listened, and they did that for a while, but they still they spoke too soon. And mm-hmm. I guess for me, what what I struggle is with like when it comes time to say something, mm-hmm. what do I say? I, yeah. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you want to recommend, I would love to know a good book that addresses uh, the pastoral problem of evil, how to handle that, and mm-hmm. just your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think, I think it's crucial to recognize the difference. And I hope anyone who reads the book, I hope they will read, read the preface, because in the preface I clearly distinguish what I'm doing in the book and what I'm not doing in the book. And when someone, what I'm not doing is is trying to say this is what you should share with somebody when they're undergoing suffering. At the time of somebody who's undergoing acute suffering, that's not the time to introduce uh, philosophical explanation uh, for why why God might permit evil. I do think that uh, for those who undergo suffering, there comes a time, at least for those who are uh, Christians or those who are at least willing to entertain the possibility of a God who exists and loves them. There, there does come a time where they might wrestle with what they have experienced and want to go looking for answers. And I think it's at that juncture where a defense or a theodicy can be helpful. And I think it also can be helpful before suffering suffering comes. Uh, if you already have a particular framework in mind, right? So one thing that Cosmic Conflict provides is if you understand that many things are happening that God doesn't want to happen, you don't have this additional layer of cognitive dissonance like, why is God doing this to me? Or even necessarily, why is God allowing this? Uh, we may not know exactly why, but there's at least three ways, right? It might be uh, might be necessary because of the kind of free will God grants for love. It might be uh, something that would go against the rules of engagement if God were uh, to stop it. Or there might be some some it, the world might be worse overall without it, or it might be some greater good that we don't know about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't have to you don't have to wrestle with this idea of of trying to make sense of suffering as something God must be doing to me. If we recognize that an enemy has done this in some broad sense, the world is not the way God wants it to be. Mm-hmm. This is not what God desires, and he has a solution to it. Uh, and that primary solution is Christ, is the cross. I think that's where we should look. And somebody who has that before they go through acute suffering, it's not going to relieve the suffering, but it might help alleviate the second level, the cognitive dissonance, right? That Kind of exacerbates the suffering after the fact. Um, I think the best way for people that are actually willing to entertain, trying to wrestle with with what has occurred, is is actually to to look to Christ first, right? That's where we have confidence as the author and finisher of our faith. That even if we can't make sense of why things have happened uh, the way that they have, uh, we can we can trust Him uh, that He is only good, only loving, and only has our best good in mind. And you have not only the God who suffers on the cross for us, but I think that there's a robust case that can be made that the God of the Bible actually suffers whenever we suffer. Mm-hmm. And so he himself is voluntarily undergoing suffering in solidarity with us 
all throughout history. So we're never alone. And I think at the pastoral level, also the theological level, but at the pastoral level, that is very powerful and very important to remember. And then if somebody really wants to go into the more philosophical issues to try to make sense of this, alleviate some of the cognitive dissonance, I think we go down the road of the free will defense, a cosmic conflict. I think one one good book at the, at the more pastoral level, I think uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book, I think it was called uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. I think that's the title of it. Uh, it's very readable, uh, very, uh, very pastoral in many ways. Uh, that's that's the book that most immediately comes to mind at that level. Uh, right. But for us, I think the, the most important thing to do when encountering people uh, suffering is to do what Job's friends did, as you alluded to, for the first week. They sat with him for a week before they opened their mouth and got themselves into trouble. Instead of trying to, trying to explain it, actually uh, be compassionate, show compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Be with them, do anything that you can to help them, and let them know in tangible ways that you actually care and love, care for and love them. Uh, and if in the future it comes a time where uh, they want to try to wrestle with this at a theological level, uh, that's when the the more philosophical defenses and theodicies might be beneficial. Uh, but just manifesting the love of Christ in person, in action. Very good. All right. Well, um, I'll try to summarize and then uh, we'll we'll end this. So we we said at the outset the free will defense addressed the logical problem of evil, but then this probabilistic version arises, and so what Dr. Peckham has set out to do is to present a theodicy that can solve or answer the probabilistic version of the problem of evil, and I guess in its simplest form, we would say, um, or that the probabilistic version of evil would would say. Um, this much evil, uh, it's just very unlikely that there'd be this much evil if there is an all-good, all-loving, uh, God, all-powerful God. Um, and your theodicy comes along and says, well, it's, it doesn't seem like it's all that unlikely once you um, consider these kind of seven um, uh, factors. Uh, and, and one of those, the, probably the, the main one, the biggest one, was this uh, this that free wills an instrumental of instrumental value in reaching love, and that's the, the primary thing. Uh, but once you introduce free will, you get this cosmic conflict, and it's an uh, epistemic conflict, not a, a power struggle. There's parameters that God follows, and He can't play into Satan's hands; otherwise, it just validates what Satan's saying. Um, and so, the best way He can solve this is by surrendering his life, showing that he's trustworthy, and um, Satan's allegations are def- uh, shown to be wrong. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That concludes my interview with Dr. Peckham. The link to his book is in the notes on this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Also, if you value the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming one of my patrons. Right now, I have to work several side jobs to help make ends meet, but by becoming one of my patrons, you're allowing me to devote more of my time to creating content, and you're also helping provide for my family. So I really appreciate all of the patrons that I currently have. I couldn't do this work without you. That's it for now. See you next time.